Father, we come now submitting ourselves to you for the feeding of your word. Lord, you have graciously given us this testimony of truth. And Lord, it's our earnest prayer that you would make it effectual in our lives. Father, if you will feed us, we will be fed indeed. We'll receive what we need for our nourishment and encouragement and correction and growth. Oh Lord, we throw ourselves upon your mercy and grace in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look for you to keep covenant with us in his name. For we ask all of it in his name. Amen. I ask you to go ahead and open, if you do have your Bibles with you, to uh, Hebrews chapter 11 once again. And we'll be uh, looking there in just a moment at the continuing testimony of Moses. God graciously and marvelously chose to give life to mankind. Mankind chose sinfully and tragically to defy God and to embrace death. And ever since Cain struck down Abel, right up to this very day, including the tragic events of this past week, men and women have been slaughtering each other for one reason or another. Tomorrow, we're going to remember and honor those who were cut down in the defense of freedom and the cause of liberty. And so we should. But we must remember not to forget that this sacrifice was made necessary by the deadly impact of sin on the whole creation. Our Creator gave us life. The father of lies, who Jesus said was a murderer from the beginning, is the purveyor of death. And fallen men and women have been the servants of Satan in that cause since the very beginning. We stand appalled and stunned in the wake of the senseless carnage of last week. We weep with the families and we're outraged by the violence. And I think as Christians, we're a bit puzzled by the mystery it all seems to be to so many. A society, beloved, that refuses to listen to God and his word is one that courts violence. Let me repeat that. A society that refuses to listen to God and his word is one that courts violence. In a culture where you're not allowed to say in the public square, as we call it, that the God who made us and gives us life commands that you shall not murder, that he orders the forfeiture of our life, the life of anyone who dares to take the life of another, and that further he promises eternal judgment for such sin if it's not repented of through the mercy of Jesus Christ, is one that by those very prohibitions, the, the prohibition of the publication of God's will and truth cheapens life and invites violence. While God says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Men and women stand in the streets 
and scream for the shedding of innocent blood as if it were some sort of distorted and grotesque rite. Whenever you turn from God, the great giver of life, whenever you reject his holy law and instead make the ones who brought death into the world your gods and your lawgivers, you're going to see carnage in the end. Even when God's law is regarded as true and right, men and women will still, because of sin, kill one another. But reject him and reject his will, deny the need of his grace and mercy, and you'll eventually see people in the streets calling for the blood of others and cavalierly killing one another. It's inevitable that when you make those inclined toward death, both gods and judges, you will see a culture of death develop. It's inevitable. We urge and we beg men and women everywhere to hear the word of God and to turn to the one who gave his own son up to death for sinners so that they, through his grace, might have life. We urge and we beg them to turn away from the voice of death and to hear the Lord of life, who since we all share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen. We read the spirit and the bride, the spirit of God and the bride, the church of Jesus Christ, says come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The water of life promised by the Lord Jesus Christ through his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. In 1 John 5 and verse 10, John writes this, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the, test, this, has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us uh, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, there's one place and one time in history where there was a mysterious culture of death that has always intrigued mankind. Even today, the nature of this civilization is studied, and it draws out the interest of people throughout the world. The time and place might be described as ancient Egypt. The Egyptian Book of the Dead was written on a scroll of papyrus that, if you unrolled it, would be 30 feet long. And it was full of elaborate instructions on how to negotiate death in the afterlife. No world history museum is considered complete without a section being dedicated to Egypt 
And within that display, a discussion of the Egyptian views on death and the so-called afterlife. Of course, Egyptian civilization was much more than a culture of death. It was advanced to a remarkable degree. A survey, and that's all anyone can really make of it, reveals that they engaged in almost every form of literary, historical, medical, chemical, scientific, military, and industrial activity imaginable. Some of the most popular sports were fishing, rowing, javelin throwing, boxing, wrestling, weightlifting, and gymnastics. The most frequently played team sport was field hockey, played with palm branches shaped into a curve at the end and with a ball made of papyrus and covered with leather. The World History Encyclopedia goes on to say energetic and physical pursuits played a particularly important part in the education of future leaders. Running, jumping, swimming, rowing, and wrestling were all part of the weekly routine designed to develop strength, stamina, and team spirit. The Egyptian dedication to art and entertainment is equally legendary. And they possessed a wide range of musical instruments from guitars to all sorts of flutes and percussion instruments. They were highly adept at the production of cloth, jewelry, makeup, wigs. And of course, we know all about their building programs and their architecture. I could spend a great deal of time presenting to you evidence to establish the fact that though the Egyptians were indeed focused on death and its impact on all of life, they also developed an advanced culture that offered an endless opportunity, especially for the ruling class, to enjoy every aspect of life, not not in a crude and stunted way, but in an advanced and elaborate way. And understanding all of this, beloved, is critical to understanding what you read next about Moses. So we turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24. Hebrews eleven twenty-four. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. To indulge and have a part in all the aspects of that culture I just described. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, to cross over Jordan, to go into the promised land, the land of peace. The attention shifts in this great treatise on faith 
from the faith of Amram and Jochebed, Moses' parents, to the man himself, Moses, from their faithful trust in the living God, uh, despite the threatening circumstances that sought the death of their son, to the faith of the son that they had faithfully raised, were carried quickly from the days of his riding in the little ark in the Nile, watched over by his sister Miriam, his being nursed by his birth mother and his being trained in all the knowledge and life of Egypt and Egyptian society under the authority and sponsorship of his adopted mother, the Egyptian princess, to the days when his own faith was exhibited. And we're introduced to the faith of Moses here as a grown-up. He's all grown up as we begin looking at this. And that implies more than just advancement in age. It also includes maturity and accomplishment. It wasn't just that he had grown big, but he had grown in other ways as well. So that he was, in a sense, great in the land. He'd not only grown up, but he'd grown responsible. He had understanding, and he had judgment. Being a grown-up doesn't necessarily mean that one possesses those qualities, but Moses did. You can be an adult and still be foolish. Job 12.12 says, Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. And uh, that's the case with Moses. As he grows and matures, he becomes wise. The account doesn't go into the details of his decision, but it gives us just the bare facts. But it makes sure that we understand that he makes this decision not because he's naive or ignorant, but he makes this decision as a wise and prudent man. So we get just the bare facts. We find a great deal here that teaches us about Moses, even though that's all we get. It teaches us about Moses' faith and how it manifested itself in very practical terms. And those lessons begin with his refusal. That's where we start, the refusal. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Based on his belief that God is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Moses, when he had become great, denied all the worldly advantages of being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Consequently, we can say that the first fruit of Moses' faith was a healthy contempt of the world. And I say that carefully, a healthy contempt of the world. The word refused here is the same as is used to describe the denial of Peter in the courtyard when he was asked about knowing Christ and being a follower of Christ. That's in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard 
And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. He refused it. That's not me. No, I don't know anything about that. And Jesus used the term in Matthew chapter 10 and verses 32 and 33 when he said this. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies or refuses to admit attachment to me before men, I will deny or refuse to admit attachment before my Father who is in heaven. So, what Moses is doing is he's stepping aside from that position and he's saying, I'm refusing to be known as the son of the princess of Egypt. I'm refusing to be identified with her and with all that is a part of being her son. In short, Moses by faith disowned his relationship with Pharaoh's daughter and the ruling class of Egypt because he considered it, as Dixon says, an unhallowed honor. There was honor in it in some regards. Um, The honor in it is still acknowledged by people today and their interest in Egyptian culture. But it was an unhallowed honor honor. It wasn't anything set apart for the glory of God. It wasn't anything associated with the true and the living God. He was disowning, we might say, his right and access to the finer things that the Egyptian culture promised because they were unholy and they were without promise. And by faith, Moses understood that. As Dixon put it, it is better to be a member of God's church amongst God's people than to be in a great kingdom without the church. We read earlier this morning from Psalm 84, where it says a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's the heart of Moses when he grew up. After he had been trained in all that way, after he had been exposed to all of that, he'd been trained by his mother and father, certainly, but then he was trained in all these things of Egypt, and when he grew up and was at the point where he could make a a real decision about it, his decision was to refuse to be a part of those things and to identify with the people of God. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near, Psalm 65, verse 4, says, to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. So the first thing is his refusal. The second thing we see here is his choosing. Choosing, verse 25 says in in Hebrews 11, rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because he would not have chosen to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter, therefore he refused to be called so. That's the way you should understand these words. 
What he's in effect saying here is that Moses is saying if he had had the choice himself, he would have never chose to be identified with uh, Pharaoh's daughter. He would have chosen to be identified with the people of God. So that being his heart and spirit by faith, he's refusing it now that he's grown up and in a position where the decision does fall on him. Now, it's important for us to understand that that's not intended as a criticism of his parents for what they did in putting him in the basket and putting him out in the Nile, or a repudiation of the kindness of his adopting mother. He's not condemning that either. The circumstances were dictated at the time by providence, and he had no control over things as an infant, obviously. But he saw how God loved and cared for him by those means and, and then honored the Lord by choosing, now that he could, to identify with him, to identify with his promises and his people, than to identify with the pagan, superstitious house and culture of Egypt. He saw how God loved him. He saw how God cared for him. He saw how God provided for him. And recognizing that that was the hand of God in his life, he said, I'm going to identify with the God who has loved me and with the people who are his people. By an assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen, that is by faith, Moses preferred to be mistreated or persecuted as a shepherd from Judea It was a position he chose for himself. Rather to be maltreated with the people of God than to enjoy the quickly passing pleasures of sin. You know, it's one thing when believers are compelled to suffer. You know, when you have to. You don't have a choice. It's another when you have a clear way of escape and you choose or prefer to be counted with the people of God, though the costs might be high. Excuse me. From our childhood, and if you're covenant children here this morning, from your childhood, until you leave this world, there are opportunities to make this same choice. Sometimes the circumstances are really mild, and other times they're quite brutal. As a child or a teenager, all around you may be ridiculing Christianity and Christians, Christians in their faith, and you can prefer to be identified with them, that is the Christians and their faith, or not. Often the criticism is cruel and false. But that's the time when you can make the most effective choice. Calling those liars on their lies and standing up for the people of God whom the Lord loves. There will be times when you'll be enticed into sinful behavior. Again, to gain acceptance in an effort to capture some supposedly rich and wonderful experience. 
But such things are described here in this little piece on faith and Moses' faith in their true character. They're described as the pleasure of sin. In whatever form it appears, it's fleeting. Sin is actually a noxious thing. So it has to put on the appearance of providing pleasure. It has to do that because it's poisonous. But because it's only an illusion, it's always fighting against reality. And so it's something that can't be maintained for long and it can't stand any scrutiny. When we indulge in sinful behavior, the guilt comes in pretty quickly. The ugliness of it shows itself rather quickly. And so sin has to give that false impression quickly and ardently because it can't maintain it. Sin cannot wear its mask for very long. And Moses realized that while it appeared that being the son of of the Egyptian ruling class was the preferred position, I mean, look at all you get to do. Look at all you get to have. Look at all the experiences you you get to indulge in. Uh, the, the, The difference between being a slave and being of the ruling class of Egypt was very clear and distinct. And here you are, you have this opportunity to be a part of all these things. It had the appearance of the preferred position. But by faith, Moses understood that it was an illusion. And he preferred the honorable place that was to be found in being identified and known as a son of Abraham with all that that promised. Adults have the same opportunities to deny being a son or daughter of the world and to identify with Christ, even though to do so may make others mock and despise you. It's easier to keep silent and to enjoy the acceptance of your peers and the approval of a godless world. But for so many reasons, beloved, it's fleeting. It's easy to see the pleasures offered by this world as far outweighing the promises of God. But if one's honest, the pleasures melt away very quickly. Did you ever try to eat just one of those mini M&Ms? You know, not the big ones, but the little tiny ones? Most people, before the last hint of the presence is gone, are reaching for another, maybe even a handful. Sin's like that. And that's why after it's indulged once in the pursuit of some impulsive pleasure, one soon finds him or herself reaching out again and again, never satisfied, sick with gorging and plagued with guilt, but not able to stop. This was a choice Moses made both when he was at an age to have good sense and in a position to know what those pleasures might entail and what the alternatives would mean for him. 
In other words, it was neither a naive or ignorant choice, but an informed and a deliberate one. Faith so clears the eye in beholding the things of this world as it makes a man discern them in their own proper colors. Vain, transitory, full of vexation, and subject to many temptations. Thus, it makes a man to slight them, says Gouge. This clear eye, as Gouge calls it here, Moses possessed by the grace of God, despite the fact that he was fully immersed in this world as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. As Moses walked through the courts of Pharaoh's house, he could see that it was an illusion, while at the same time he had possessed in his heart by grace and faith the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Calvin adds, this clause ought to be carefully noticed, for we here learn that we ought to shun as a deadly poison whatever cannot be enjoyed without offending God. Now, the third thing we have is his considerations. In verse 26, we're told, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He made a ruling in his own heart and mind. He ruled in his own heart and mind by faith that the reproach of Christ was greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. The treasures of Egypt were all around him. The gold, the jewels, uh, the fashion, all the things that, that this world has to offer, they were all around him. The treasures of Christ were unseen, but promised. And Moses judged, he ruled in his own heart and mind, that those unseen things promised by God's word were of more value to be more treasured than all the things that he could see in Egypt. The reproach of Christ is that which is described for us back in chapter 10 and in verse 32, beginning in verse 32. There we read this. But recall the former days... When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. So really what is happening here in Hebrews is in chapter 11, you're being giving, given Moses as an example of what these people had already gone through and endured in the name of Christ. They had been imprisoned. They had accepted the plundering of their property so that they could help others and help those of Christ's kingdom who were in need. They had been exposed to reproach and affliction and so on. They had already known these things. So there's a knowledge here of what's being spoken of. And Moses made this judgment, this just evaluation. Moses judged that it was a more valuable treasure to be persecuted for the sake of Christ or the Messiah 
and all that was promised in him than to be in possession of all the gold and gems, all the fine linen and learning, all the power and luxury of Egypt. Think of it this way. Somebody brings you an artifact and says, this golden necklace is from ancient Egypt and belonged to Nefertiti, the queen of Egypt. And you look at that gold necklace. And in addition to its value as gold, it has value because it came from that very mysterious, highly regarded ancient society of Egypt. But it even has more value because it belonged to a queen. And not just any queen, but this one who had a reputation for beauty. Somebody comes to you next with this and says, here's the Bible, which is worth far more. It's not the treasure of some earthly princess. It's the treasure of the King of Kings. It is the gift of Christ. And its words not only open the fullness of their beauty to those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb, it holds the gospel, the way to forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Because this is Christ's word. It is precious. And those who suffer in his name are honored to be counted worthy to do so. That's the practical aspect of how you can see this judgment. And that's what Moses was determining. This word and promise of God is of more value than necklaces of gold. It's King David who said in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Why? Because the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and pieces of silver. It's good for me that I was afflicted because the affliction made me learn this. And learning this is more precious than thousands of pieces of silver. And then lastly, we have his motive. He was looking to the reward And that brings us back to the start, doesn't it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, the people of old received their commendation. And without faith, it's impossible to please him, that is God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. And what was Moses' motive? The reward, the reward that comes from seeking God. Moses kept looking away from the illusionary wealth of Egypt and fixing his eyes on the wages Christ promised. Calvin said he had, he had his eyes fixed on the promise of God, for he would not have hoped that it would be better for him to be with the people of Israel than with the Egyptians, for he could not have hoped that it would be better for him to be with the people of Israel than with the Egyptians had he not trusted in the promise and in nothing else. 
And neither can you and I, beloved. Peter says in the first Peter chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And every believer makes the same choice and decision that Moses made. We refuse to identify and be identified with the world and with sin. And we choose rather to suffer whatever is required of us in the identification that we have with Christ and his promises. Because we regard that a much greater treasure than anything the world can provide. And I want to consider just how precious a treasure Christ is by considering this as we close and then move together to our Savior's table. Because it was the opposite with him, you understand, than it was with Moses. It was the opposite with Christ. He was willing to be identified with you. A much different thing. Let me put it this way. By grace, Jesus, when he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, choosing to suffer the just judgment of sin on the behalf of sinners, bearing their deserved reproach rather than to enjoy the eternal pleasures as the Son of God. He considered bearing the reproach of his elect a great thing, for he was looking toward the reward. And what reward would bring the Son of God to do that? And it's you. You redeemed, saved from your sin, brought into his presence with joy. It's fellowship with you for all eternity. The covenant promise was this, and it comes from Isaiah 53, verse 10 and 11. When you make his soul, when God makes his soul, the soul of his son, an offering for sin, he the one being offered, shall see his seed, you and me, beloved. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul 
and be satisfied. You will see the labor of the soul of the Savior on your behalf and be satisfied. And then by his knowledge, the knowledge of the Son who died for us, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It's to bring us that Christ endured these things into the joys and the blessings that we have as the people of God. And how can we thank him for such a sacrifice? Moses is an example to us of how we should live. And Christ shows us that example in the opposite terms, but beautifully and wonderfully. This is what he's done for us. What ought we, how ought we to live for him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the faith of Moses and for the revelation that's given of it to us in your word. We pray, Lord, that now as we turn to our Savior's table, that we'll have in mind the sacrifice which he made for us. And Lord, confess with Moses that we would be identified with Christ and all the promises we have in him, rather than this world and all the illusion of fleeting sin. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts to live by faith and to make that choice not just a secret thing in the depths of our souls and hearts, but, Lord, a public thing in the way that we live and bear testimony for our Redeemer. Lord, grant us that grace for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.